Thank you for listening to the Cross Loganville podcast as we continue in our series, 29, the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 24, you know, we started the series back in March and we're slowly climbing and crawling through the book of Acts. Acts 24 is a beautiful chapter. And if I had to title this talk today, I would title it this way. How do you respond when you're wrongly accused? How do you respond when you've been slandered or attacked? What what do you do? What is the right Christ-centered approach to take when people come at you? As you pick up the story, Paul was, again, in prison in Caesarea. He had been locked up, really, because he was preaching the resurrection. And he's about to stand trial before a guy by the name of Felix. Uh, Felix was the Roman governor that would oversee uh, parts of Judea and Samaria. He had been the governor there for about five years at this time. If you study Felix's biographical sketch, he was an original slave. The dude came out of poverty and pain and hatred and harshness, but he learned to manipulate and connive his way, and he eventually gets himself involved in the political structure, and now he's serving as governor. But he was a very corrupt and evil and dark person. He was known as a briber. If you study Acts 24, he was constantly trying to make bribes with Paul in 24 and 25 here. And uh, the guy was known for so much illegal activity. And because of his leadership and how corrupt and dark he was, it had led to an increase of crime throughout Judea. So it was a very wicked, twisted place. Uh, Even Felix was known to eliminate even close friends that would try to get in the way of his uh, political ambitions. So when you start to look at who Paul is about to speak to, this guy has got a, a track record and a portfolio of corruption and darkness. He's on his third marriage. He's married to a chick now by the name of Drusilla. Uh, Paul, with the help of a magician friend, wooed her away. She was married to the king of Emesa at that time, but this magician friend came in, and, and, Paul, and, and Felix worked his deal and wooed her away. So he's on his third marriage. Their relationship and marriage was birthed out of sin and, and darkness and corruption. I mean, it was way jacked up. This is who Paul is about to, to talk. To. And so when you study it, Ananias was there. Nick painted him up last week. What an awesome job Nick did on the uh, providence of God. Ananias was corrupt. This lawyer that they've hired is corrupt. Felix is corrupt. And Paul starts trying to reason with these people that are corrupt right out of the gate. And, and it's very interesting that uh, the claims of the gospel are reasonable if you're open to the truth. The claims of the gospel that Paul is going to make for a reasonable, rational person, it it makes sense if you're open to truth. But if you're not open to truth, it doesn't matter what a person says. And a person who is living saturated in sin is not rational and he's not reasonable. Sin is destructive. And once you start to allow yourself to be saturated in sin, it will start to destroy your soul. 
And you, you can deal with people that are saturated in sin and listen to how they think and what their reasoning is, and they just lose all ability to be rational. It's, it's destructive. Galatians 6 even says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. The reality is there's a lot of people that are mocking God with the way they're living their lives and they're living in deception. And they're so deceived that they think deep down inside that they're going to be able to get away with evil and it's not going to happen because the scripture says your sin will find you out. And for all of us, Neil, no matter what is going on in our life, we're going to get exposed and revealed. Paul is on trial. We pick it up in verse 5, and there's three charges being brought against him. We have found this man to be a troublemaker who is constantly causing riots with the Jews throughout the world. That's an accusation. It was a lie. Hey, hey let me tell you what this guy's about. It was, it was a lie. The second thing they bring against uh, Paul, if you will, is that he's the ringleader of a cult known as the Nazarenes. Paul would go, that is true. I'm the ringleader of this Nazarene movement that was birthed and founded by Jesus, but it's not a cult. They're trying to attack him there. Third thing, he, he was trying to desecrate the temple, and we've arrested him. He was trying to bring destruction and devastation to the temple. And th this is the house of God. And look at what he was doing. That was a lie. Have you ever noticed that people that tell lies will accommodate the truth, but people that live truth will not accommodate a lie? You ever noticed that? People that are speaking lies will accommodate truth, but people that are living truth are not going to tolerate a lie. And so I pose the question to you, how do you live as a Christ follower when evil is in leadership? Sounds familiar even with our day, doesn't it? And that is what Paul was dealing with. Starting in verse 10, Paul makes his defense and he makes this statement. These men cannot prove the things that they're accusing me of doing. They never found me arguing with anyone in the temple nor causing a riot in any synagogue. I admit that I follow the way, true, which they call a cult. I worship the God of our ancestors and I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. Ask these men what crime the Jewish high council found me guilty of. Except for the one time I shouted out that I'm on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Nick was painting it up last week, like even when Paul was going to certain places in his conversation with these religious people, Pharisees and Sadducees, that they even started arguing and debating against one another. Paul basically is standing before this corrupt leadership saying, these charges are foolish. These are false accusations made against me. You can't prove this stuff, and they know it. I went to Jerusalem to worship God, not to cause an insurrection. That's what he's saying. And when you look at this, he lays out his confession of faith, even here in this text, where he says, I worship 
the God of our fathers. I worship the one true God. You guys claim, and this is what he's backdooring, if you will, emphasizing, you claim you know God. I worship the true God every day with my life. I honor this God with my life. That God is evident of being alive in my life. The second observation he makes is, I believe everything that the law and the prophets said, which even would include prophet Isaiah that would talk about the suffering servant and Jesus coming and what he would look like. I believe everything that the law teaches and I believe everything that the prophets even foretold. I, I, I believe it. I have hope in the one true God. And honestly, guys, his name is Jesus. He's making this confession of faith. What would be your confession of faith? He, his fourth point is, man, I, I, just, I just want you to know that I have a clear conscience before God and before my fellow Man, I'm, I, I promise you I'm living clean. I'd only been saved about a year, and I was at a Christian conference, and the great Christian apologist Josh McDowell was speaking, and he was laying out just his claims of Jesus being more than a carpenter, but he asked this question while he was speaking. I was a brand-new believer. I'd never heard this question posed before. But he says, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to find you guilty? If you were on trial for really being a Christ follower and an intimate follower of Jesus, if you were on trial saying, yes, I'm all in, would there really be enough evidence in your life that would find you guilty, that would prove that what you were saying was true. There's so many people in the South that say, I'm a Christian, but there's not enough evidence to find them guilty. Paul is on trial because there's enough evidence to find him guilty of being a Jesus follower, not being an insurrectionist, not being one that would cause riots, not being a troublemaker. Paul was constantly on trial because, as Josh McDowell would later write, evidence that demands a verdict. One of his great books, right? Look at verse 24. A few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, most scholars believe that this conversation that we read in about 12 seconds probably was 30 to 45 minutes of dialogue that Paul was having with these people. It says that they listened to him as he shared his faith in Christ Jesus. Then Paul reasoned with them regarding righteousness, self-control, and the coming day of judgment. Paul started to reason about righteousness, self-control, the coming day of judgment, probably for some 20 or 30 minutes with them. And when you read this, the next phrase says, and Felix became frightened. 
Felix became scared. Felix became convicted. As Paul just lays out what righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment looks like, this dude starts to freak, and he says this, go away for now. And when it's more convenient, I'll call you again. I've had conversations with people over the years where you lay out the gospel with them, and they would basically say, stop it. I don't feel comfortable right now. Well, does the gospel, when it confronts sin, ever really make us feel comfortable? Is that the ultimate aim in life, just to be comfortable? Hey, hey Tim, when, I, when it's a little more convenient, after I've sowed my wild oats and raised hell and partied like it's 1999, then maybe I'll want to sit down and talk to you. It became frightened. Get away. I, I can't handle it. Let me break these three words down for you. It would be worth paying attention to. Righteousness. Righteousness is what God, it's what God demands. I demand righteousness. How does it become a person become righteous with God? It is through repenting of sin and placing your total faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1, therefore, having been justified, justified means to be declared righteous by God, having been justified through faith in Christ alone, we have peace with God. How do you get to a place of having peace with God? It is through having faith in Christ and him alone. <sighs> Righteousness implies that I live the right life and I do the right thing. Here's a working definition for you, Righteousness. Righteousness is doing the will of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that allows you to imitate the heart of the Father. It is doing God's will, God's way, for God's glory. So when you look at a person, you, you could say, Sandra, that, that, that person is a righteous person, meaning They've come to faith and, and trust in Christ. Positionally, they're righteous because God says you're righteous. I've declared you that way. Conditionally, righteousness is when we're walking with God conditionally. Positionally, God declares I'm righteous. Conditionally, we walk in righteousness when we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, doing what we do for the honor and glory of God. That's what God wants us to do. Now, unrighteousness is choosing to act and speak according to our sinful flesh. A person's unrighteous. They live, they act, they speak. Whatever their flesh promotes inside of them, they do. Self-righteousness is when you do things in your own power for your own benefit. So there's a lot of unrighteousness and a lot of self-righteousness, but God calls us to be righteous in the way we love life. So you've got to ask the question vertically, horizontally, are you in a right, righteous relationship with God? And when you study Scripture, God requires that he be center of our lives. He's a jealous God. God requires that Jesus be center and first of everything that we do. That's the reason even in the giving and tithing piece, he goes, bring the first 
fruits, the first 10. To, I, I, I want first place in everything that you do. We set apart Sunday as a day of worship because it's the first day of the week. I want you to set apart a day just to, to worship me and glorify me. So Jesus desires, inspires, and requires, hey, I, I, I want to be the center of everything. I want to be first in your life. And if he's not, then you're not living a righteous life. Then you've got to ask the question, am I living righteous in regards to my relationship with other people? Now, remember the audience Paul is addressing these things with, and he's talking about righteousness vertically and horizontally, and, and the implied, because many believe Felix was very aware of this way that Paul was a part of, and the law, God requires you know that you don't steal and you don't cheat and you don't kill and you don't lie. And you know, you know, God requires that you don't seduce another dude's woman and make him your wife. You know, you know, God's righteous, and there's some standards of being righteous. God re requires that you forgive other people, and God requires that you extend mercy and kindness. And the text doesn't read it, but it's implied. Felix, you and Drusilla. Manifest none of these. Matter of fact, if, if Paul were probably quoted to the nth degree, he would say, you guys live in open defiance against God's law. Why, why did Paul address these things? Because he knew his audience. And, and see, God has called you and I to live righteous lives, that we're not to live uh, in open defiance or even closed defiance against God. He goes, I want you to be righteous as my son is righteous. I want you to be holy as my son is holy. And you've got to ask the question, are you living righteous with your walk with God and you're, are you living righteous with other people? And then he talks about self-control, and self-control is something that God desires from us that only God can produce in us. God requires this from us, but only God can produce this in us. And so when you start to look at self-control, anybody ever tried to manufacture self-control when they were lost and apart from Christ? Anybody ever tried to master it in the flesh? You see, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and self-control. So what God requires is self-control, but God knows that what I require, I can only produce, and you better be in right relationship with me if it's going to happen. Self-control, I was studying this word and simplifying it for you. It means to tame uh, indulging the appetites of the flesh. That person is self-control. They're able to tame indulging all of these fleshly desires. It's to master these passions and desires of our flesh. How, how does that happen? It happens through the power of the Holy Spirit that he allows us to crucify flesh. And Felix and Drusilla were not crucifying any of their wicked 
passions. I've had people over the years, and again, I just heard the phrase about five or six years ago for the first time, and, but, but I heard phrases like, uh, hey, you, 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 you live like there's no tomorrow, dude. And then the phrase about five or six years ago when Trevor said YOLO, and I'm like, what is YOLO? You only live once. And there's people that live that way, right? Go for the gusto. Do everything you can. Go have fun, eat, drink, and be merry. And I'm like, man, it's sad to see people live that way because they never think about consequences for living that way, and they smoke like a chimney, and all of a sudden their lungs are fried, and they drink like a fish, and their livers are deteriorating, and they live a life of sexual promiscuity, and all these STDs are following, and, and all of a sudden, man, there's it's, it, you know it's a trip? I'll be 60 in December. And I know I don't look it. But anyway, here's the thing. <laughs> Come on, Drew. You got to say amen. Come on, man. You got to give me some love. <laughs> no, I feel it. I look it. Okay, but here's the deal. You get this age, and a lot of those people that like high school and college friends that YOLO'd it, that live like there's no tomorrow, It's amazing how many of them I see today. And man, emphysema, lungs shutting down, just contaminated, dialysis, liver issues because of all the alcohol and drugs and toxins in their body. And you start to look going, ah. And isn't it amazing that we live like hell for like 25, 30 years? Right? And we radically repent and come to faith in Jesus. And then it's like we start praying for crop failure. Like, God, all those seeds I've sown for the last 30 years, I'm praying for crop failure because I'm a new man in Christ. I'm not really sure that you get a new kidney and new lungs. You might get a new heart, and you can glorify him. But when he says about self-control and indulging the flesh, what Paul is emphasizing is this. Y'all know there's a payday coming someday, and we're all going to stand before God and give an account for the way we live. God's called us to be righteous. This is what he demands. God's called us to live with self-control. This is what God desires. But the coming day of judgment is coming for all of us. There's going to be a final judgment where everything is disclosed, where everything that we thought that we could hide and cover and not have to deal with, it's going to get exposed. And what he's saying is you're going to give an account for the way you live life. And even the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, Cindy, starting in verse 11, he makes this statement. He says, let us do our best to enter to the promises of God, to this rest of God. Let us do our best that we're going to enter into this rest with God. Heaven, let us do our best, man, to do everything we can in our, in our lives to experience the fullness of the promises of God. But if we disobey God, if we do, as the people of Israel did, we will fail for, for the word of God is alive and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. He goes off, the, the word of God, it, it will expose the innermost thoughts and desires, appetites of the flesh. 
And nothing in all of creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. He is the one to whom we will be accountable. Let us hold firmly to what we believe. Hey, let's stay with it. Let's keep running the race. Let's stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Let's do everything we can to hear the the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's, let's do everything, Chad. Let's do everything we can to trade. Let's, let's pour for each other. Encourage each other. Stay with it. Don't quit. No, don't, don't, don't cave in. Even in the midst of all the evil and craziness, stay with it. Stay with it. So here's where I want to go as I kind of move toward the back half of this message. Back to the original question. So how do you respond to all this adversity and accusation and slander? How do you respond to it in a Christ-like way? How, How do you live right when you've been wronged? How do you model Christ when the people closest to you, people that you thought you could trust, slander you and attack you, when, when they come against you hard, that inner circle, you know, those people that you love, that you've done life with, that you thought you could trust, those wounds, you take them a little more personal and the pain is a little deeper when you pour. How, how do you respond to that? That's where I want to land this thing. Because Paul was under false accusation repeatedly, slanderous statements, all of these spiritual attacks were coming his way. You know, in pastoring and being in ministry, I've had people like, well, you don't preach the word. I'm like, we're going somewhere else. Okay. And there's been so many attacks and slanderous statements that people have made over the years, right? Y'all don't preach the word. We're go- I mean, Rick, we went through this with even a family here recently, and it's like, you don't preach the word. We're going somewhere else. I'm like, I got good news for you. I preach the word, and I'm not going anywhere else. You see that? E-X-I-T. <laughs> if you want to leave, leave. But our hearts are pure. What do we learn If we comb through the pages of Scripture and ponder even the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the epistle writings, what do we learn? And I would tell you, I think we learn a few things that we can apply. Remember the words of Jesus. That would be my first point. Like when you're going through this, remember the words of Jesus. Matthew 5, 11, blessed are you. When people applaud you and love you and make you your favorite pecan pie on your birthday, blessed are you when people tell you that you're the greatest on the planet. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when you hmm, are insulted. Hmm. When, when people insult you, blessed are you, Nick. When they persecute you, blessed are you. When they falsely say all kinds of evil against you, blessed are you. When they're doing that, 
because of my name's sake. When, when, when people look at you because you're affiliated with me and they choose to attack you, bluster you. How many of y'all over the last weeks and months and even years when you've gone through major slander and accusation, have you stopped and said, thank you, Jesus, you tell me that I'm blessed? I'm blessed? But I think somehow we misread Scripture so often, right? If the world crucified Jesus, Jesus, God in flesh, perfect, never sinned, all of us are jacked up, but he never did anything wrong. Why, why would I be surprised if someone wanted to attack Rick and Kara? If they attack Jesus and they're walking in the dust of Rabbi Jesus, why would I be shocked if somebody wanted to attack him? Rick made a decision, and I trust the dude, period, but he made a decision on a situation here not long ago, and we got blasted. He got blasted, I got blasted, we got blasted. And I sent him a text, and I said, what's up with all this? He goes, you got time to talk? And I said, yeah, I got time to talk. And uh, so he calls me, answer the phone, and I said, hey, hey, listen, before you say anything, I just want you to know I totally trust you. So whatever they said, whatever they're mad about, whatever, I just want you to know I trust you and I trust your decision to lead the student ministry culture. So you can tell me. What they're mad about, I don't even care. I trust you. All I knew was he was being persecuted and he was being attacked. And we, but that dude is trustworthy. He's he's been faithful. He's been consistent. I look and I go, he goes, well, thank you. Because sometimes people are going to twist your motives and sometimes people are going to twist your words and sometimes people are going to miss represent you and misquote you and sometimes people are going to ostracize you because of your God-centered views. I don't know if you can get here but it's part of your assignment of following Jesus. We want the perks and we want the privileges and we want the applause, but one of the perks of following Jesus is being attacked, is being misquoted, misrepresented. Are you in that line? Are you signing up for that assignment? Are you in that class? Because I think a lot of times we run from it. The second thing I would say is don't be surprised when you're attacked. Even Ephesians 4, 2 says, be humble and gentle, patiently put up with each other and love each other. That, there's so many things I read in Scripture, I'm like, patiently put up with. 
which means there's a lot of nonsense you're going to have to deal with. And reality is some people hear what they want to hear and just totally ignore the facts. So even when you try to explain what the truth and fact is, they've already made up their mind they're going to hear what they want to hear. There's some of this stuff about like speaking truth. I feel like, man, I'm in seminary in that one. But when it comes to putting up patiently with, I feel like at best I probably got a kindergarten diploma in that area. How many of y'all do a really good job of patiently putting up with idiots? Even one of the most godliest girls in our church that I admire, Mary, didn't even raise her hand. (laughs) Speak the truth with much grace. I would tell you that principle three. You can expect, hey, man, I'm going to have this happen. But speaking the truth with grace and letting your speech be seasoned with grace is so important. One of the things I've learned is don't judge another person's heart even when they've judged yours. (laughs) Don't judge another person's heart, even when they've judged yours. The problem for us is we don't always see what God is doing in the moment. And I was thinking about this even driving down the road the other day about relationships. Relationships, if we treated them like a marathon instead of a sprint, we would not be so quick to dispose of relationships. A lot of times we don't like where a person is. They may have different theological views. They may be more Calvinistic or more Arminian or political views, or they may pull for one team and whatever. But if we're not careful, we judge that person on the last 10 yards that they've run, not realizing there's still another 22 miles to run. And I started thinking about that. We're so quick to dis- to just say, hey, man, I'm disposing of this relationship. If I treated every person I met like, hey, this is a marathon, And I could say something today that would damage the next 10 miles that we're supposed to be running together. Let's run this race together. Yeah, I think you're jacked up and nuts, but let's run it together. (laughs) I mean, I think that speaking the truth in love with grace, it would help us, right? What, what, What do we learn I think we need to pay attention to the words of Jesus, this whole thing of speaking uh, truth, this whole thing of don't be surprised. And I think this is a huge one even for evangelicals. Point four would be this, refuse to become a victim. You know you're living in victimville. When you've been wronged or you've been hurt or you've been mistreated, And whether it was by wrong accusations or even maybe legit accusations, you're in victimville when you feel like the Holy Spirit said, you can't share your side of the story. I mean, if we ever learned anything like giving up the right to defend ourselves, if we learned that one, that would really help us a lot. But sometimes you've been hurt and you've been attacked and the Holy Spirit has said, I told you to speak only when spoken through. 
shut your mouth. I'm not giving you permission to talk. And if we're not careful, when this starts to happen, I can't even share my side of the story. I can't defend myself. So we lay down and you can't sleep and you can't rest and you can't stop thinking about how you've been hurt or wronged and you end up stewing over it throughout the day and you're replaying it and you end up miserable and frustrated and defeated and nothing solved. <laughs> the longer you replay your hurts and your offenses, and the longer you're able to justify in your mind that it's okay for you to live at 101 Bitter Lane in Victimville, you'll stay there. I think if we prayed something like this, this is a very heavy prayer right here, Trevor, but it's very simple. If we prayed, Lord, let the truth come out and let your will be done. Right? Lord, let the truth come out and let your will be done. I told you guys years ago, I'll never forget being at my grandparents. I had just come to faith in Christ, and my grandpa had a little vengeance his mind declares the Lord in him. But that day, I'll never forget, we were getting ready to eat. My granny always fixed a big, they eat dinner at 12. Anybody grew up with a granny that fixed dinner at 12? Cornbread, biscuits, and fried chicken, all this stuff. But man, he, he Lord, I pray, one of, one of my cousins, I, maybe somebody was mistreating her, she, who knows. Lord, I pray that you would send somebody over to her house and beat the hell out of that boy she's married to with a baseball bat. He prayed that while we were sitting there. And I was like, <laughs> with a baseball bat. He prayed that. My granny was like, whoo, I wouldn't have said that. I was like, I'm like, that chicken tasted different that day. But when people start to live with bitterness my, I wish I would have had that on video. I wish I could just have played that. Like, I think the solid prayer would, would have been, let the truth come out and let God's will be done. Because when you pray that truth, Lord, just let the truth come out. And your will, it puts the emphasis on the Lord and not on you as a victim or even your accuser. But I think a lot of times we want to point the finger. The fifth thing I would tell you when you're going through this, guard your heart. Because it, it's crazy how quick we can get into attack mode when we feel angry or hurt or violated. And the sooner I can conclude that I can't control what people do to me or say about me, the better place I'm in. And when you're trying to control what others say or even what type of reputation you think they might be creating about you, I like what Mark Twain said. He said, hey, man, when you tell the truth, you ain't got to remember anything. I think we ought to just tell the truth, walk in the truth. What, what, what do we do? 
the more I'm in the Word, the more I reflect on the promises of God, the more I'm allowing just worship music to saturate my mind. I start to fix my mind on the things above instead of the things here, and I have a better chance, Tara, of thinking about whatever's pure, right, holy, lovely, excellent, praiseworthy. And then I, I come alongside people like Neil and Drew or Nick or Dustin and go, hey, man, would you hold me accountable in this area? Just, just tell me, just if you have to look at it and say, just shut up. The Holy Spirit hasn't given you permission to talk. Just shut up. Okay. Hey, hey, would you pray along with me, man, that Christ would just be magnified in my life as we're going through this situation? Yeah, I'll pray for that. And then having people look at you going, hey, why don't you give thanks for this persecution that you're facing right now? Why don't you pray for the person that's attacking you right now? Why don't you serve the person that's attacking you right now? Oh, 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 oh. You don't want the Holy Spirit driving this agenda. You want to be in charge of it. Go serve them. I don't like them. Go bless them. Go love them. Go pray for them. The sixth thing I would tell you is this. You've got to choose to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive, and forgive. But I say that you've got to choose to forgive. The problem with most of us is we choose to relive and relive and relive. And it's been said that holding on to bitterness and resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. I'm going to forgive, I'm going to release it, I'm going to trust God. And here's the last point. Put your life and put your reputation in God's hands. The book, In His Steps, written by Charles Sheldon. Merle, you know it. You went through it last year, bud. But that book was written over 125 years ago. And he wrote that, Walking in His Steps, and he wrote that book as a result of this verse here in 1 Peter chapter 2. But this is what we read. To this you were called. What was I called to? Health, wealth, and prosperity, right? I was called to live a life of extravagance and pleasure. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Follow in his steps the one who suffered for you, leaving you an example that you can model him in the midst of the pain and adversity. When, when, when not if, when they hurled their insults at him he did not retaliate when he suffered he made no threats instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly what do you think about that Candace it's legit right there Enough said.